0: to the 242nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. How do we measure the impact of COVID beyond death counts? Today, I talk about the grief, loss of COVID and the COVID-19 bereavement multiplier with Ashton Verdery. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live at its new time weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Friday episodes will soon be moving to Korea time, and I'll keep you posted about those episodes. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And you can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 18, 2021, there are 2,682,931 deaths from COVID-19 globally, That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has climbed to 538,095. And in Brazil, 284,775 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Victims of Anti-Asian Attacks Reflect a Year into Pandemic. This was written by Terry Tang for Associated Press and appeared March 2nd, 2021. I found the story on PBS. Nearly a year after they were almost stabbed to death inside a Midland, Texas Sam's Club, Bowie Kung and his two sons all have visible scars. It's the unseen ones though, that are harder to get over. Kung can't walk through any store without constantly looking in all directions. His six-year-old son who now can't move one eyebrow is afraid to sleep alone. On a Saturday evening in March, when COVID-19 panic shopping gripped the nation, Kung was in search of rice at a cheaper price. The family was in the Sam's Club meat section when Kung suddenly felt a punch to the back of his head. A man he didn't know then slashed his face with a knife. The assailant left but soon returned to stab the boys. He wounded the three-year-old in the back and slashed the six-year-old from his right eye to a couple of inches past his right ear. This grisly encounter brought home the dangerous climate Asian Americans have faced since the coronavirus entered the U.S. with racially motivated harassment and assaults occurring from coast to coast. Now, just over a year and thousands of incidents later, some of the early victims find moving forward has been difficult or, at best, bittersweet. The recent wave of attacks on elderly Asian-Americans, including the death of an 84-year-old San Francisco man, has fueled worries that hostilities have only worsened. In Mr. Kung's case, the man responsible for the attack believed the Myanmar man and his children were Chinese and spreading the virus, according to the FBI. Kung said he's not sure what would have happened had a Sam's Glove employee, Zach Owen, not intervened. Maybe I might kill him. Maybe he might kill all of my family. I don't know, Mr. Kung said. God protected my family. God sent Zach to protect my family right there at that time, he said. Owen, who was stabbed in the leg and deeply cut in his right palm, and an off-duty Border Patrol agent detained the suspect, Jose Gomez, age 19. Verbal attacks have also made a lasting mark. In April of last year, a confrontation in a Richmond, California park left an irrevocable impact, not just on Kelly Yang, age 36, but also her children. She was forced to discuss anti-Asian racism with her son, 10, and daughter, age 7, a talk she didn't think would happen for a few more years. An elderly white couple upset over her unleashed dog called Yang, who is Chinese-American and Oriental, and said the words many Asian-Americans dread. Go back where you came from. Her children thought the couple meant for them to go home. Torn, Yang eventually explained they meant for us to go back to Asia. It means that we're not welcome here. Her son burst into tears. Yang believes the couple felt emboldened by then-President Donald Trump's use of racially charged terms like Chinese virus. She applauded President Joe Biden's recent executive order condemning anti-Asian xenophobia as a good start. But Yang is afraid a lot of non-Asians have already shrugged off the issue, as though it ceased when Trump's presidency ended. Douglas Kim, age 42, chef and owner of Jeju Noodle Bar in New York City, is certain COVID-19-fueled racism was behind the April vandalizing of his Michelin-starred Korean restaurant. Someone used a Sharpie to scrawl on the winter vestibule, stop eating dogs, referring to a stereotype about Asian cuisine. Ultimately, Kim decided not to report it. At the time, it pissed me off, he said, but I have more important things to worry about. Maintaining a business is more important. He shared a picture of the graffiti on Instagram to call attention to hate crimes. There was a groundswell of support, but he feels like much of it has faded. I think it's all about education, Mr. Kim said. If you raise your children that way, they're going to learn that way. I think things are changing, but it's not 100% yet. That's why somebody obviously wrote that on our door. A rash of crimes victimizing elderly Asian Americans in the past two months has renewed outcry for more attention from politicians and the media. Local officials and citizens have also taken notice. Initiatives like increased police presence, volunteer patrols, and special crime hotlines are coming to fruition. Big name brands like the Golden State Warriors and Apple, based in the Bay Area, California, I promise to donate to the cause. Cynthia Choi of Stop AAPI Hate wishes news cycles would focus not just on the latest crimes, but the solutions being discussed. Policing and prosecution aren't necessarily the answers, she said. COVID-19 vitriol is rooted in more than a century of anti-Chinese and anti-immigrant attitudes. She and other advocates think more investment in education and community resources could help get at those root causes. Anti-Asian xenophobia should be part of the ongoing conversations on racial reckoning, Choi added. Anti-Asian xenophobia, uh, reading that line, anti-Asian xenophobia should be part of the ongoing conversation on racial reckoning, she added. Our work to address anti-Asian racism is inextricably tied to fighting anti-Black racism, Choi said. That's going to take all of us. It's going to take public education efforts. It's going to take racial solidarity efforts that really bring our communities together. Before immigrating to the United States six years ago, Mr. Kung, the Texas hate crime survivor, had never encountered racism. As for what should happen to Gomez, who remains jailed on three counts of attempted capital murder, Mr. Kung said, that's up to the courts. I can forgive him, but we cannot accept racism or that kind of terrorist attack, said Kung who received more than $20,000 in online donations. One thing he's looking ahead to, life as a newly naturalized U.S. citizen in a country where they respect people. Kung remains unbothered that he may not fit some people's idea of what America looks like. Maybe personally they have racism, Mr. Kung said. I don't care. I'm proud of being Asian and Asian American. Here's a program note. This article was published before the recent murders in Atlanta, Georgia. Also, a second program note, Erica Lee, Professor Erica Lee, who was a recent guest on COVID calls, will be testifying before the United States Congress today about anti-Asian racism and violence in the United States during the COVID pandemic. Okay, I want to turn to my conversation for today, and this is one that I've been looking forward to with great expectation. Let me introduce my guest. Dr. Ashton Verdery is an associate professor of sociology, demography, and social data analytics at the Pennsylvania State University. His research deals with questions about how demographic and family change affect the health and well-being of people in different countries. Ashton Verdery, thanks so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I'd like to start the way I usually do just to find out where you're calling from and also maybe give us an update on the pandemic and vaccination situation there as well.
1: So I'm located in um, State College, Pennsylvania. Um, It's right in the center of the state. Pennsylvania is kind of known for having large city Pittsburgh and large city uh, Philadelphia on the other side. And then the center of the state is um, generally a lot more rural and small, but right plop in the middle is um, State College, which is a relatively large um, university town. Pennsylvania is doing pretty well for uh, COVID. Uh, I think we're kind of 12th in the nation for death rates, but it varies um, tremendously from urban areas to the more rural areas. Um, And my general sense is that the vaccination uh, program in Pennsylvania has been going um, pretty effectively. I, I know several people that have been able to get vaccines and things like that.
0: What's the situation on the campus right now? I mean, it's an enormous student population there, and universities have struggled over the past year to try to manage expectations of students and also manage health of course so uh
1: in the fall it was a bit um i would call it maybe hit or miss uh where there was a a period where the new york times had state college as one of the fastest increases in case counts in the country um but my sense is that this uh winter they brought the students back substantially later um rather than uh the typical schedule where students come back January 15th, they postponed the beginning of the semester for a week and then actually didn't bring students back um, to on campus till mid February. And I think that that was actually pretty helpful in <clears throat> stemming some of the uh, challenges that might come from increased case uh, diffusion and things like that. And my sense um, around town and things like that is that the vast majority of people are really working hard to um, prevent uh, you know, transmission and um, it seems to be much better this semester than it was this fall. I think the novelty of being a little bit cooped up is easier in the winter than it is in the fall. So we'll see as the spring unfolds.
0: I hope things go well there on on the campus, and I'm sure you're eager to get back into uh, more some sort of regular atmosphere with students,
1: very much so. I mean, I really like uh, classroom teaching and, just the feel of a a college campus in the spring is actually just really invigorating place to be. So it's unfortunate to kind of miss that as the weather uh, opens up, but hopefully next year um, that'll be possible.
0: We'll turn in a minute to the um, bereavement um, work that you've been doing, the bereavement multiplier. But before we do that, I I, I like to ask guests a little bit about their stream of work that they were doing before the COVID-19 pandemic started. Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of projects and questions you were engaged with um, before this time last year?
1: I would say that um, the vast majority of my research um, over the last decade or so has focused on how demographic change is changing connections between people. Um, One of the most, like, crystallized elements of that is the change in kind of family networks available to people um, in different countries around the world and over different uh, periods of time. Um, you know, one thing we know is that as uh, the numbers of children have fallen, um, for instance, in Korea, they're they're quite low, the average children born per woman. Um, as those people age, then they're going to have fewer children who could support them in older adulthood and things like that. So I've done a lot of research trying to estimate um, kind of nationally representative estimates for the U.S. and other countries of uh, sort of the you know, what I consider broad kinship networks available to people. And then I've done a, a substantial amount of work uh, examining how those kinship networks tra- uh, channel and transmit kind of resources and opportunities to people. Um, and so the COVID crisis kind of fit in with a lot of those uh, considerations, in my opinion, because of a transmissible disease and things like that.
0: How did you come to this kind of work and these kind of questions in the first place, trying to understand kinship networks as a sort of form of um, psychological coping, as a form of sort of dealing with trauma? I've
1: always um, been fascinated by the sociological literature on social networks and really the network science literature more broadly, um, which focuses on, you know, uses a fair bit of math and how people are connected to one another and things like that. But... I'm also was trained as a demographer um, and the core processes of demography are you know fertility, mortality, migration, marriage um, and there was sort of this disconnect where I couldn't connect these two literatures that I was very interested in um, without a real focus on kind of family networks. Um, and one of the things that surprised me is that, the sociological literature on uh, social networks has really kind of turned away um, from the family literature. And there's sort of two opposite streams of literature that don't work together quite well. So I was interested in uniting those considerations. And I think the more you look at um, any of the data on who people turn to for real core support or something like that, it is overwhelmingly family. So I think there's reasons to, for both sides of this debate, the family scholars and the social network scholars, to kind of consider the integrations of those um, theoretical topics uh, more closely.
0: It's really interesting. So, the, the move away from kind of the family studies was that um, something of the internet age, I mean, sort of looking more broadly at pay, people's interactions that go beyond their um, geography of their homes and their workplace? Or is it driven by some change in the law and the way statistics are calculated? What, what drives that divide in the literature? It sounds quite interesting.
1: I think that um, on a broad theoret- theoretical level, it goes back to some of the 18th century kind of scholars thinking about, um, and, and not 18th century, 19th century and early 20th century scholars thinking about, you know, what makes modern societies, um, and this kind of notion that like family-based or kinship-based uh, social exchange and, and societies um, are characteristic of, of non-modern societies. And the idea that um, in modern societies, you know, we live in these cities, and friendship and coworkers and all these things dominate our lives, really took hold in the early early twentieth uh, century. Without as much, I think, empirical support for um, you know the direction that it took, and you know, I think if you look at the U.S. Um, kind of kinship. Research fell out of uh, favor in sociology, um, but stayed very prominent in anthropology and, um, to some extent, in cross-national research. But less so mm. in um, American-based research. And as such, there was such a move towards friendship-based um, kind of studies. And and so there's those elements. I think are big factors. I think another related factor is kind of the age range of the population. In some sense, if you think of the density of uh, ties. Certainly, if the average age of the population is 35-year-olds uh, and 40-year-olds, um, coworker ties and friendship ties are going to be quite important. Um, but as the population ages, um, and you know we have a, a mass kind of aging society that many places around the world are facing, um, often those friendship coworker ties will fade away, um, and be left. People will be left primarily with family-based ties. Um, so I think that there's maybe a move back towards kind of kinship-based research um, in society in general.
0: So with that as a background, then take us back to February and March of 2020, and you're starting to see and then live through um, this pandemic, I'm assuming your campus closed about when Drexel campus closed around the middle of March. Um, What did you begin to think about in terms of your own research at that time?
1: Um, You know, around that time, there was a kind of broad narrative I saw in tweets and Facebook posts and things like that, um, that, you know, does anyone know anyone who actually has died of COVID? Does anyone actually know anyone who's been infected? Um, And so I I think that that was percolating in my mind. And there was a bit of a um, narrative that many of those who are dying are are very socially disconnected and um, people that we don't care about, they're going to die again. They're going to die anyway in six months kind of narratives, which obviously I don't uh, think was... um, a valid one, but that was, you know, a broad sentiment. And so I was interested in trying to understand some of the demographic components of that. What is the likelihood that people would know someone who died or, um, and related kind of topics. And because of that, I was thinking about prior work that I've been doing over the last several years with a number of co- colleagues, including um, Jonathan Daw, who's at Penn State, Rachel Margolis at University of Western Ontario, and um, Emily Smith Greenaway, my co-authors on this main paper, um, thinking about the COVID crisis and kinship networks in general? Like where where does the burden of death fall and who would those people be connected to through kind of different types of um, kinship connections?
0: So there's so much going on there. I mean, one thing, your immediate observation about that early days of the pandemic, and I had forgotten this, but you're right. People were desperate, I think maybe mostly because they There's a helping impulse, or maybe the media was looking for stories to try to tell the story of people um, who were sick and dying. But there was also a, a really virulent denialist discourse, which continued throughout the year, which was actually articulated by the lieutenant governor of Texas about, you know, this is affecting populations who are already sort of out of the mainstream of society, elderly. It's not really affecting children Uh, That must have distressed you uh, the way you describe it, even to hear that immediate politicization of um, who this was impacting in society and their tether back to maybe uh, broader kinship networks.
1: Yeah, I mean, my main interest was an empirical question, you know, what to what extent are. People who are dying of COVID, you know, are they primarily older adults who've out-survived most of their family members, or are, are they more uh, fundamentally integrated? I certainly had um, a number of suspicions that it was unlikely to be the case that it was primarily people who um, had, you know, no living family, but I was curious about, you know, whether that would be the case, and um, I think the other part of it was a little bit of a, a thought about how people are not really understanding exponential growth, and this is going to be the type of thing that... Uh, you know, it it seems like a drip, drip, drip in in March and April of last year, but it's gonna be a a torrent um, pretty soon of uh, these experiences. And so trying to understand something that snapshot data at that time couldn't tell us about, but maybe a model that could help us understand the entirety of the um, pandemic experience as it was likely to unfold over this year and possibly into next year.
0: So you had, I'm gonna ask you a minute about some kind of how you put the study together, but just to come to the study, um, the, it appeared in the proceedings of the National uh, Academy of Sciences in July of 2020. I just want to read one line from it. Um, you're talking here about the uh, impact um, of COVID across family groups. Uh, and the impact of deaths across family groups. And you say in the piece, under various epidemiological scenarios, our analyses show that the burden of family bereavement from COVID-19 deaths will be higher than the COVID-19 death toll by nearly an order of magnitude. And I think that's what really, um, that's what grabbed my attention. And I think that's what grabbed the attention of the media as well. I mean, we were already struggling to get our minds around what then seemed like impossible death counts and the pace of death And then your piece suggests you're not counting everything you need to be counting. Talk a little bit about that first finding, and then we'll talk a little bit about the implications of that finding.
1: Certainly. Um, I think that there's a few things I can say about that finding. You know, one is just that people have connections all across their lives. you know, doesn't matter how old you are, you're connected to many people um, in your lives. And the people that we were able to look at, or the kin ties we looked at, we were thinking of you know really close kin that are um, primary sources of social support. But you could imagine that the number would be even uh, larger if you were to look at friends and kind of more distant relatives and things like that. But we wanted to kind of zero in on um, kind of core social support networks. There's also um, substantial literature suggesting that the experiencing deaths in the kin categories that we examined. Um, is associated with negative uh, mental health um, education, mental health implications, educational derailment for young children, and other things like that. And so, we focus on a select group of um, family types, including parents, children, siblings, um, spouses, and, and grandparents. The loss of them, um, and we, what we wanted to look at was one way of reframing our question is, you know, given the average age patterns of COVID death. How many of those kin types do people have? Um, and so that's what we were trying to look at. And then how robust would that be to changes in um, the age pattern of, kin- of uh, COVID-19 mortality You know, within a relatively reasonable bound um, disparities by race and other things like that?
0: So how did you assemble the team? And how did you actually do this work in the midst of everybody's trying to figure out how to shut down universities and shut down research safely um, you were going to work
1: <laughs> um, I mean it, the team was uh, really amazing I've been corresponding extensively with um, Emily Smith Greenaway the second author at um, University of Southern California and we had um, written a prior piece that came out in applied demography kind of a naive model that um, kind of end up ended up be uh, we revised substantially and and Considered a lot of other factors that came out in the proceedings National Academy of Sciences. Um, So she and I had been talking extensively about this and this prior kinship data that I had modeling data that I had done with Rachel Margolis and with Jonathan Daw, the other co-authors. And so we, she's a real expert in bereavement research in child loss in Sub-Saharan Africa and things like that. So we had done, um, we communicated a number of times about the general research topic, and then we were able to uh, build on the prior kind of kinship network. Data that I had collected um, with co-authors and model this particular crisis. In terms of the operations of it, I thought that it was a um, it was a really like invigorating time, despite sleeping very little. Um, and I think all of us were. Most of the co-authors on the paper have small children under the age of five. Um, but because Emily is based in Southern California, Rachel's in Ontario, and I'm here, and some, there's some distinction between some of us are night owls and some are not, we sort of had that feeling of like the stock markets are open all you know 24 hours a day kind of thing, where I would work and pass the paper off to um, Emily, and then she'd work, because she's three hours behind, and pass it off to Rachel, who's an early bird, and she'd work on it. And it was kind of this beautiful um, uh, kind of stock market feel to it, which was kind of enabled us to move more quickly, I think, than would normally be the case. We also, um, you know, but it was a very challenging time to work with children out of daycare. I have a, a sure. four-year-old and a one-year-old yeah. and things like that.
0: That's a, a great model for social scientists everywhere to think about. Get a, a make sure you have a team member in North America, <laughs> uh, have one in Asia somewhere uh, so that the work can actually move on a 24-hour basis. And, and, but I think that's an important detail to note, which is that you already had some um, ties yourself there in terms of some pre-existing, you know, shared interests and some methodological, um, you know, some of the harder questions about method, you, you maybe all already sort of shared some kind of the same worldview about how to put this work together. That, that really matters when d- disaster actually, actually unfolds. I, I just want to read one more line from the piece because it, it, it sort of uh, points to the implications of it. You say in this piece the scale at which COVID-19 mortality will lead to kin loss among surviving Americans. So the pace of death, um, suggests that COVID-19 might create a second wave of population health challenges tied to bereavement and the loss of social and economic support. So that's the other, the other piece of it. I mean, you know, one, and I'm speaking at a sort of general level of how it was reported in the news media. One is that kind of, this is worse than you think because, um, when people die, it's not just the loss of one person. But then you're suggesting um, some follow-on effects here, which could even be conceptualized in a sort of public health model. Let's talk a little bit more about that. What actually follows, um, you know, in terms of bereavement? What does that actually mean in terms of the lives of this sort of broader group of people who are impacted?
1: Right. I mean, I think that you know, this is to some extent an intuitive idea, um, but it is important to have studied it, and I think the the empirical literature on it is very um, solid. You know, it's not just that people go to funerals and, and cry, and then all of a sudden everything is better and it's over. Um, these deaths that we experience in our of our close relatives and close friends and others uh, have lasting effects on people's um, well being. The Literature is clearest um, in terms of like causal uh, effects on the influence of spouses um, mortality on uh, subsequent mortality of yourself. And, you know, estimates from, um, you know, very rigorous causal inference models suggest uh, that, you know, it's a 15 to 30% increase in mortality risks in the year following a spousal death. Um, This is controlling for kind of the likelihood that you marry someone who's about to, who's likely to die at the same age or shares a, a, diet with you and other things like that. So very strong evidence that you face an elevated mortality risk after the death of a spouse. And in the COVID crisis, so many people, uh, older adults, are losing spouses. We could imagine that that would create a ripple effect. Um, There's other evidence, however, though, that experiencing the death of relatives um, unexpectedly, experiencing the death of children in particular is um, associated with very negative kind of life course outcomes um, no matter what age you are. there's a concept uh, in the psychological literature called prolonged grief disorder, um, which a substantial portion of people who experience a bereavement event um, go on to develop, and this is true across, uh, you know, middle age, older adulthood, etc. There's also a fair bit of evidence that bereavement events can lead to substantial. Uh, Challenges in relationship formation, um, where divorce uh, is elevated after um, experiencing the death of a parent um, and very elevated after experiencing the death of a child. Um, Domestic violence tends to be uh, elevated after uh, bereavement events. There's also uh, substantial evidence, I think, that children's um, educational trajectories um, and life course outcomes in terms of future earnings, criminal justice system involvement and other things like that are heavily affected by deaths of relatives during um, childhood and adolescence. And so, um, you know, no matter what age you look at it, experiencing the death of a, a parent, a child, sibling, spouse, grandparent, there's probably, there's pretty strong evidence that it is often quite detrimental for people.
0: Just a reminder: You're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today to Ashton Verdery about the bereavement multiplier and the problem of grief in COVID nineteen. Even what you're just describing, Ashton, um, you're probably aware. You know, even look back in, looking back through history, um, you know, there's always uh, journalistic reports and kind of instant literature around disasters. I'm thinking about the Iroquois Theater fire or the Great Chicago Fire, even going back, you know, that far into the 19th century. And one of the features of that writing is always um, the husband or wife being told that their loved one has died and they 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 drop dead or they. um, And it it seems, of course, to try to hit this dramatic impact, it would lead in a paragraph or something like that about one of these disasters. But what you're suggesting is that there may be more to that than just journalistic flair, that there actually is a sort of possibility that people. Um, will receive um, this kind of news and have grief, which would actually lead to physical distress in a near term, not just over the long term.
1: Very much so. There's um, a concept that people often refer to called dying of a broken heart, um, and it's you know it's a real thing. Like uh, the the evidence is quite strong about this. There's a a nice study by uh, Benjamin Domingue and others in Journal of Gerontology Social Sciences that looks at. Um, kind of short-term mental health uh, associations from bereavement events and translates those to long-term kind of physical health declines. So uh, experiencing substantial mental health problems um, following a bereavement event, a year or two later, people have substantial physical health declines. One of my favorite studies um, is by Felix Elwert, uh, in this literature is by Felix Elwert and Nicholas Christakis, which um, looks at, Wives versus ex-wives to try and get at whether this possibility that um, that experiencing bereavement is associated with dying of a broken heart. And so, what they what they compare is they compare people whose ex-spouse died and do they have a mortality event following that, compared to a current spouse. And they kind of divide those numbers through causal inference approaches, and they're able to kind of rule out the fact that you know it's not just that you marry people who are similar to you; it's that There's an emotional toll that really leads to individuals um, dying, and that there are even particular diseases that they're more likely to die from, um, including, I believe, sepsis is one of them uh, that you're much Mm -hmm. more elevated risk of dying from. I'd have to look up the actual paper to remember the others, but there's a couple that are quite uh, strong associations.
0: Up to now, we've been talking about um, people. We've been talking in a sort of general sense. And uh, of course, that's how a lot of the death statistics were also reported in the early days of, of the pandemic. But it didn't take long before we started to see patterns in the data that indicated that COVID-19 reflects and its, its damage reflects the inequalities and the fractures that already exist in American society and around the world. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how you um, approach the population as you built your model, and what kind of disparities in grief the results actually show us?
1: Right. Because we were drawing on some of our earlier research, uh, you know as as you said earlier, the having that basic research completed allowed us to to work on this kind of more applied topic um, rapidly we were drawing on our our prior research trying to understand racial disparities in US kinship networks. Um, What's the difference between uh, non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black Americans in terms of the probability of having a living sibling who's 60 years old, or that sort of question? Um, Really basic science kind of stuff. We had done a lot of work on that. And so because of that, most of our data were kind of race, uh, disaggregated kind of network data. Um, So we needed to model. the experience of COVID nineteen mortality in a race disaggregated fashion, and even by the time, um, even by the time uh, we began working on getting the paper revised and resubmitted and all those processes, there was emergent racial disparities in likelihoods of death, and so we decided to do a number of scenarios to test how likely um, it would be that there would be a substantial difference in the multiplier between Black Americans and White Americans. Um, we found uh, in general that the, the multiplier doesn't differ dramatically between Black Americans and White Americans, but the ratio of uh, the, the death rates do differ so dramatically that the kind of bereavement experience is substantially higher among Black Americans than White Americans, which follows. Um, there's a substantial number of papers by Deborah Umberson and others suggesting that Black Americans at all lives, at all ages, are much more likely to experience the death of a family member or. Um, relative than, than white Americans, owing to mortality differences and um, particular types of mortality as well.
0: And then coming back a bit to the impacts across the age age range, this is really interesting. We were talking about earlier, the sort of move um, to social network thinking instead of kinship and family um, approaches. It, and so we tend to think... Um, you know, if our focus is people who are in midlife, that's going to give us sort of one snapshot of what bereavement is. But what if you, you know, extend that across the population at both ends of the age scale? How did you approach that issue?
1: So uh, the data that we had been working with was, um, you know, nationally representative, um, was the panel study of income dynamics, some of the supplemental data we worked with. And then um, the simulation uh, modeling kind of demographic modeling data we worked with was also covered all the age ranges. And so we were able to kind of examine um, what losses would look like at different ages. And that's sort of an advantage of uh, the the format of the data that we were working with. The Covid crisis has overwhelmingly killed older adults. About eighty percent, eighty-one percent, I think, of uh, deaths have been among those sixty-five and above. Um, But that still leaves nineteen percent of the deaths, uh, you know, under sixty-five, and um, those people are quite likely to have children, um, you know, who who potentially are still in elementary or high school. Um, They're likely to have um, siblings, spouses, um, other things like that, and so we were kind of interested in understanding how the mortality crisis, uh, even among kind of younger age groups might translate into ramifications for children who lost parents or things like that.
0: I see. And I should have asked you this before, but um, how big is the sample size that you work with to then extrapolate across the population more broadly? I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated about, I guess I'm asking you to give up your trade secrets are here a little bit, so you don't have to go too far if you don't want to. But I am curious, like how you get this data in the first place, what kind of questions you ask people and how How many people you need to talk to to then model that across the population more broadly?
1: Right. So we have two primary sources of data in the manuscript. One is a computational model. Um, so sample size is not necessarily like the the main component um, because it's it's simulated data. So it's kind of like an agent-based model or other kind of computational um, approach where we simulate people giving birth, having um, getting married, uh, dying, other things like that. Um, and we, we simulate that from 1700 uh, to 2100 actually, in the case of the, the US model that we're working with. And in that, I can't remember off the top of my head, there's a couple millions of uh, little computer agents simulated uh, in this model. We then, um, when we simulate the likelihood of giving birth and all these things, we match them to population distributions of those events. So how many people have two kids, one kid, etc. Um, How is that changing over time? What's the likelihood of dying at age 30 versus 90, et cetera? Um, so we we model all of those factors simultaneously. And then we compare them to real data. Can we retrieve the change in US life expectancy from the simulated model? Um, how well does that compare to what actually happened? And you know it compares quite well and many other things. We also compared it directly to data from the panel study of income dynamics, which is this very long-running household based survey in the US where they sort of follow it's a genealogical design. So if you are in the study, if you're ever in the study with someone who is in the study, sorry, if you're ever in a household with someone who's in the study, you kind of get the gene. And then if you move to another household and have children, they're going to be in the study and it gets passed down through this kind of kin, kinship-based process. And while that's not a perfect representation of US kinship networks, it allowed us a ground truth comparison to look at you know, what's the chances of, um, how well does our model replicate the distribution of living cousins that people have or um, grandparents and things like that. And so that's what we were, um, that was the other comparison
0: that we made. I see. So just to return to some of the broader implications of, of the work and, and bring us back to, you know this discourse around numbers. And I've talked with lots of guests on COVID calls and we talked about data visualization um, and about really the kind of astounding work in some ways um, that data scientists have done to bring the COVID-19 pandemic into formats that news media can use readily, uh, that podcasters like myself can use every day to pull, you know, um, death statistics, infection rates from around the world. And, you know, counting deaths, of course, is a major way that we try to assess the magnitude of a disaster across time, and we count dollar losses. As well. And I'll leave that there. People can make of that what they want to, but you're suggesting an alternative way, not a replacement necessarily, but an alternative and enhancement to the way that we process what those numbers mean. I guess it's sort of a broader philosophical level. Um, why should we care about that from your perspective?
1: I think that um, we really have to get beyond looking at society as just a bunch of atomized individuals and start thinking about kind of the broader social fabric that connects us. And I think that um, f- realizing that these bereavement-related challenges do um, lead to kind of sub- subsequent uh, mental health challenges, subsequent mortality challenges, and things like that is a vital uh, understanding of and really re- reformulate some of our understandings of uh, these disaster events, um, the the broad scale with which they influence people is going to be uh, quite traumatic, I think.
0: Translate that into some policy thinking here then, because again, you know, as we think about the pandemic and as it's played out in the United States, of course, there was a need pretty early on for economic support. So that that's one indicator, you know, people are, are being impacted, maybe because they're losing their jobs, but maybe because someone in their close family network has lost their life or can't work, and that has an impact on their economic well-being that had a policy remedy, at least last summer. But beyond that, it's it's a little hard. If I'm thinking, oh, I'm a policymaker, I'm reading your study, Ashton, what kind of support do I need to try to write into a bill to give to people?
1: I think that there are um, very clear kind of things that, that need to be done. One is uh, recognition, uh, and, and to some extent, these, these vary by um, life course status. So I think I'll start with children first. Um, you know, there's a very nice study out. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but it uses the Survey of Income and Program Participation. I believe it might his last name might be Weaver. But he looks at children's parental loss um, during childhood and their, their subsequent life outcomes. And it, there's a staggering finding in there that suggests that, Only about half of children who experience the death of at least one parent during childhood have access to Social Security survivor benefits. Um, Part of that is a gap that they're just not being connected with the resources to which they're entitled. Part of it is a gap that not all the parents who pass away um, had qualified for Social Security kind of survivorship benefits and things like that. But that to me seems like a very clear uh, effort that the government could could step in on and, and federal policy could could directly address. At a more local kind of state policy level, um, we can also imagine greater connection of children in high schools and elementary schools to grief counselors and things like that—a real proactive effort, given that a, a substantial number of people might have lost a parent from COVID-19. Uh, moving to the middle ages, I think the biggest policy issue right now is the the lack of, or the not lack of, but the spotty coverage of bereavement-related uh, employment leave policies. Um, this partly because of how FMLA is regulated, where it's different for companies of different sizes, um, partly because of the actual clearly specified losses in FMLA um, that qualify you, um, partly because of employer interpretations of those or employer uh, understandings. A lot of people don't have access to you know, any paid leave or unpaid leave associated with the death of a spouse um, with the death of a parent and things like that. And that's a, a clear policy direction that I think needs a lot of attention, given that time to grieve is very important for people's mental health and well being. And I think that that would be an area of, of clear attention. And then at the oldest ages, the biggest issue I think is um, prevention of mortality and kind of disconnection from society overall. And I think that policy efforts that uh, proactively reach out to recently bereaved individuals, particularly those who have lost a spouse um, would be a very uh, strong policy and potentially uh, health and human services or other kind of um, uh, medical organizations in the US should be focused more on on that kind of outreach.
0: I'm really impressed by you know your attention to these different age groups and and uh, particularly as we're talking about you know the impact of uh, bereavement on younger people, um, it really pushes back against this rhetoric that we've heard throughout the pandemic that this is not a disease that affects young people. I mean, we've heard that it's become almost a truism. And that's, that's only true if you, if you look at the infection rate or the death statistics. I mean, what you're suggesting is that, no, there's a broader impact here that we have to, have to take into account. I'm, I'm not sure I've heard anybody at a policy level really take that on board, aside from you know issues of getting kids back to school. And that's one thing. But can you say a little bit more about what's on your mind here in terms of impacts on children, what we might be looking for in terms of new research in that regard?
1: I do have a paper forthcoming. It's under media embargo, so I can't um, say this. I'm, I'm
0: not the media, so you can tell me anything you want. <laughs> um,
1: but we estimate a very large number of children are going to experience um, the loss of a parent from COVID-19 um, and a surprisingly sizable fraction of them are going to be elementary school age children Um, and i do think that those children need uh, substantial attention i also think that the kind of child related um, issues associated with this yes there's been a lot of attention to economic loss among parents um, loss of jobs and things like that what that bodes for children's well-being there's been a fair amount of attention about school closures and what that bodes for children's well-being but there hasn't been as much direct connection of the mortality crisis Two individuals um, who who experience the deaths of those who are left behind, and I think that that's sort of where I was trying to say we have to stop looking at these death statistics as a drop in, like uh, atomistic. Each individual um, dies, and then no one cares about it or anything. I mean, people are desperately affected by these things, and the loss of a parent um, for a child is a, a hugely derailing um, consequence for people. Going back to the paper I mentioned about children's only half of children who lose a parent, this is pre COVID um, are connected to social security benefits. The paper found that the children who were connected to those benefits tended to fare much better um, in subsequent uh, kind of life course outcomes, school completion, uh, earnings and things like that at midlife. And so I think that those questions are, um, you know, real motivations to connect people to those policies.
0: Just coming back to the impact of the death of older people that would seem to align with the sort of general expectations people would have. If somebody has gone into a congregate, you know, into care facility or certainly in hospice, or if they're in a nursing home, um, then that would seem to be kind of like normal life, whatever that, that means, um, families already somehow prepared in some way for the loss of that, of that person from their family. But my question is this, um, that indicates there's a kind of a standard, um, impact of death for somebody who's already reached, a uh, you know, an older population, but what if they die of something like a pandemic, does that have a different impact? And I, I, come back again to, you know, these terrible stories in which COVID would come through and kill dozens of people in one care facility. And then you find out that the regulation is lax. I mean, it immediately became politicized. I wondered, does that have a different impact in the way people grieve?
1: I think, um, there's a really great uh, set of articles by Deborah Carr um, focused on this topic, and to some extent the the jury is out. Um, but certainly the expectation I think would be that this is going to these are going to be more severe deaths um, in terms of bereavement associated grief. Uh, for one, um, there's nice demographic models that suggest the average person who dies of COVID-19 has about 13 years left to live. Um, so just you know in, in a broad sense these are relatively unexpected deaths it isn't that it's someone who's going to die six months later it's uh, an unexpected death and the literature um from grief studies and thanatology and things like that psych- psychological research on bereavement overwhelmingly emphasizes that unexpected deaths are particularly traumatic for individuals and particularly likely to lead to some of these downstream negative consequences add to that the Problems of COVID nineteen um, that you can't even be with the person as they pass um, for many people that the grief ritual of funerals and other things like that are disrupted that there's some seriously invasive medical procedures associated with it with people on respirators and things like that you know in a coma for weeks um, I think that those things are quite traumatic for a number of people um, who who survive like the, the the bereaved not not just the person who passes away um, and those all point to this being an elevated uh, kind of uh, trauma situation for uh, grief and bereavement. Um, but that said, the empirical kind of research that would establish whether there's stronger associations with depression or mental or physical health, uh, things from this disease mm-hmm. versus, uh, say, you know, strokes or Alzheimer's or things like that is still uh, in its infancy.
0: Okay, so we'll keep an eye on, on that. Let me ask you sort of a, another question because, you know, the policy options we were just talking about, they might have a sort of a, a life course impact, but they're relatively um, contained. In other words, you know, someone dies and, and then a, a child or a spouse might need to have access to financial resources or mental health resources. But let me ask about sort of the longer tale of this. Do people remember grief? If they have a strong grief experience, but maybe somehow they seem to move past it, but then does it return at various points, maybe triggered by other events or just over the course of, of their own lives? Does it, Tell me about the time scale of grief.
1: You know, uh, I would say that my understanding of that is um, more limited than I want it to be. Uh, I believe that there are a substantial number of studies that suggest that about 15 to 20 percent of the population um, is experiencing severe uh, grief associated with um, a bereavement event, you know, six months or more later. But I don't know um, sort of the tail end of that. Um, I can say, you know, from to some extent from personal experience, but uh, f- from a number of considerations that, you know, I think these these issues can persist for years for many people, um, and it can be a really challenging event. Uh, that leads people to uh, rethink all manner of their lives and, and maybe change careers change um, educational trajectories things like that that uh, you can o- you can always think back like oh I you know dropped out of law school or something like that because of that event and maybe you always question it but I, I don't know um, I don't know what that would mean I don't know the studies that have looked at that
0: I don't want to get you too far out of your lane of expertise but I'm thinking also about reducing the impact of bereavement. Um, what kinds of mental health resources might that indicate? Are there interventions beyond um, strictly economic ones, relief payments, that we might should be thinking about in terms of addressing this multiplier effect?
1: Yes, there's um, some relatively good uh, psychological literature comparing kind of approaches to uh, Grief management, I believe cognitive, um, some of the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, approaches work well. Um, but all of that said, I am a neophyte in the, the psych literature, so I can't really adjud- uh, judge the efficacy of different um, approaches. But I do know that they are adding um, prolonged grief disorder and other kind of uh, bereavement-related disorders to um, standard psychological kind of diagnostic materials. Um, and that my understanding is that those will probably be associated with... Um, or that inclusion will probably lead to kind of standardized protocols that, that work uh, with, with evidence-based.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today with Ashton Verdery about grief and COVID-19 and the COVID-19 bereavement multiplier project that he's been working on since last year. We've been focusing our attention uh, on the United States uh, through much of this conversation. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how, um, other countries or in other parts of the world. Uh, There are different sort of cultural styles in dealing with grief. Do you see similar impacts um, of bereavement? uh, I wonder if you could sort of bring us the comparative angle a little bit.
1: Yeah. um, You know, the place that uh, we've looked the most currently is uh, in Europe um, because there's a data set that was being kind of, I mean, it's fortuitously collected this summer um, and they had to stop collection because of the, escalation of the crisis, but then they pivoted, it's called the Survey of Health Aging and Retirement in Europe, they pivoted to collecting specific COVID-related data um, and bereavement is one of the questions uh, that they looked at. So my postdoctoral um, research associate who works on my uh, project, Howei Wang, uh, has done a really nice uh, paper that we're gonna present at the Gerontological Society of America um, in the fall that focuses on differences between countries in terms of um, experience of the bereavement multiplier Um, sorry, not the multiplier, experiences of COVID-related bereavement and um, mental health implications of that experience. And what she finds and what we find in the manuscript is that people who experience a bereavement event are about 57% uh, more likely than the general population to report current um, levels of depression and that they're, you know, Roughly about the same. So I think it's sixty-something percent uh, more likely to, re- or have sixty-seven percent greater odds of uh, reporting that d- their depression has worsened since the beginning of the pandemic. We found that one of the big differentiators is these. Both of these factors tend to be a little bit uh, more severe among women than among men. Um, this is a population of people who are o- over the age of fifty, so it's it's an age limited set. Um, but the you know a fifty-seven percent increase in uh, depression reports is is quite staggering. It was also slightly worse in countries that had greater COVID-related mortality than um, countries that had less COVID-related mortality, particularly for women. Um, and this is net of your own experience of uh, bereavement. So if you're in say Belgium, which was a particularly hard-hit European country with um, you know as of last summer about ten percent of older adults reporting um, being bereaved. Um, that you're, is associated with substantially worse depression than uh, being in a country like Slovenia with very uh, few older adults who were
0: bereaved at that time. I see. So we'll be looking to more studies like that as well. I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in, I'm based in South Korea now um, in countries that haven't had the sort of um, there had been a, a you know, loss of life here has been low compared to the United States or Brazil or or Italy. Um, but doesn't seem to reduce the impact across society. I mean, you know, people take it extremely seriously from an infection control perspective here and I can't help but wonder how these are all connected somehow. That if people took bereavement more seriously, they might then think more seriously about infection control and that seems to be, I don't know if that's what's underlying the situation here in South Korea, I'm still trying to understand it, relying on brilliant colleagues to try to explain it to me. but. But that death number, I think, is misleading somehow when we compare the United States and South Korea, for example. What do you think about that?
1: I do think there's just been a substantial disruption in so many places. And that disruption could be greater infection control, could be greater mortality, greater economic challenges. Um, One of the things that what you discussed kind of raised for me and one of the things we tested Tried to test in the European data, although it's it's not perfectly set up for this. But whether you know a bereavement experience is is worse as a lonely transition. If you're one of the few people whose relative died of COVID nineteen, is that somehow worse for you than being um, one of many people whose relatives died of COVID nineteen? We didn't find any evidence of that, um, although a substantial amount of kind of social science theories would suggest that that could be the case. Um, and so we were not able to uh, determine. You know, our evidence was. You know, sort of fail to reject the null on that. Um, that it was not the type of thing that we were seeing in the data doesn't mean it's not existing, but um, we, we didn't see it.
0: I wanted to just follow up with that because you know, we think about other moments in history in which you have so many deaths occurring in such a, a limited time frame. Um, the war model war framework is one that people have talked a lot of. I'm slightly concerned about using war as a metaphor for COVID, but um, in terms of loss of life in a short frame, that's certainly applicable. And then 1918, influenza, other disaster events. It's it's rare when you have a disaster event like this, which is global um, with such high loss of life. Are there some solidarity effects, some things that actually reduce the impact of bereavement because so many people are experiencing this going through it at the same time. You just indicated a little bit, that you've been thinking about this, but I wonder if you could say more.
1: So that's the flip side um, of the hypothesis that I offered, that the lonely experience is uh, worse, is the, the flip side of it is that the common experience is somehow easier. Again, we didn't find any evidence of that. Um, I was somewhat surprised given the emphasis of that in the literature and um, particularly kind of the war um, solidarity literature and things like that. Uh, we didn't find evidence of it. Essentially, Individual experiences of bereavement are very strongly associated with negative, uh, you know, mental health uh, implications. And that didn't tend to vary by the extent of bereavement in the country overall, which I was surprised by.
0: I'm surprised by that, too. But it I mean, just in that, there's so much um, that I think we need to try to try to understand, because I, I feel like People have operated intuitively with this sense that there is a solidarity that comes through bereavement in war, that is, in fact, often, war binds society together while it's sort of tearing society apart. But you're saying you're not seeing that impact in the data you've looked at?
1: We did not. Um, now, that said, you know, our unit, of anal- well, our unit of analysis is individuals, but what we used to measure the severity of the crisis um, and the likelihood that other people had been bereaved were the countries in Europe. Um, the data we looked at, the Survey Health, Aging, Retirement in Europe has um, this COVID survey was fielded in 26 countries in Israel. Um, so we were able to look at variation between the countries. And it's very likely that the Within-country heterogeneity um, is is much stronger than the national heterogeneity, and you know, I mean, certainly in the United States, if you were to look at June of last year, and you were to run, like, what's the U.S. crisis severity? It was much, um, you know, most people who were bereaved were probably in the Northeast at that time, um, and it wasn't necessarily as national of an experience, and so perhaps that's what's swamping our results. Perhaps that explains the lack mm. of kind of. Um, Variation by bereavement, but we are not able to investigate it more. In part, um, you know, there's because of the timing of the crisis. There's 1,200 uh, people who reported bereavement in these data, but it's um, you know you slice it and dice it 27 countries and slice it and dice it into counties or something. And it just it, you, you run out of data uh, to to make real strong inferences from. So we were not able to you know conclude one way or another that um, there was a sol- solidarity or a lonely transition effect
0: again, maybe asking you to go further than what the data allows, but just to think with you a little bit about this, I'm also interested, you know, you you did take various kinds of inequalities and social differences into account as you were considering it. And, you know, you mentioned Israel. So, you know, thinking of the Holocaust or thinking of the United States, um, the long impact of slavery and structural racism or even these uh, anti-Asian hate crimes that we've been seeing, I wonder how we can work that into this discussion as well, that the bereavement multiplier might also, there might be another layer to it that comes when people feel that they have been victims of hate, that they've been victims of uh, discrimination.
1: I think so. And I and I think that perhaps the um, national experience with these mass uh, events perhaps provides um, different solidarity or uh, protection. Um, that's not something that we've tested, but I could certainly imagine that being a plausible hypothesis that um, countries that have experienced substantial bereavement events maybe are better prepared to cope with it or something like that. Um, In terms of the hate and um, issues like that, yes, I think uh, we're facing a host of crises at the same time right now. And this is piling atop um, already big challenges.
0: Even in this uh, short period of time that we've been discussing, I've, I've come up with maybe eight or 10 new studies for you to do um, because I'm so fascinated with the sort of th- you know, direction of the work that you're doing. We're almost up on time with Ashton Verdery today here on COVID Calls. I have one more question for you, which um, I've been wanting to you know ask, ask you since I first read this work, which is what are the implications of this work from your perspective for Memorial um, how should we be thinking about memorial processes for COVID nineteen in the United States or around the world?
1: I think um, I think that in you know I, I don't know as well around the world, but in the United States, I think we need to recognize that this is a very strange um, year. It's a you know fifteen to twenty percent increase in mortality rates, um, and you know, on average in the US, I believe 3 million people die. And this year, it's 3.6 million or something like that. I mean, it's just staggering kind of growth. And so many people are bereaved. And and I do think that some of the disaster literature and other things like that suggest that the collective memory of these events um, can be, you know, very important for uh, reframing kind of national identity, reframing um, individual kind of solidarity experiences and things like that. And I, I think that, there should be a consideration for how to best memorialize um, all that has been lost from COVID-19 in the U.S.
0: Just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. This has been a special week on COVID calls because we have marked the one year anniversary of doing these broadcasts. And uh, just a, a note, we will be taking Friday off this week. So there will be no COVID calls on Friday, but please join us back on Monday, 5.30 PM Eastern time for a new week of COVID calls. And I can't think of a better way to go out on this anniversary week than talking to Ashton Verdery about this just really pathbreaking research about the COVID-19 uh, bereavement multiplier. Ashton, uh, and also to your whole team, thanks for this work and thanks for your time today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate our conversation.
0: It was fun. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next week.